Bible to the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 29. We're actually going to be covering two chapters this morning, um, although we will uh, somewhat summarize certain parts of it for the sake of brevity and time. But we're continuing on, and so we are coming to a uh, towards the end of our First Samuel series. Now, <clears throat> once we finish at the end of September, we're going to do a kind of a review. This is uh, a, a rewind is what we're calling it, where we're going to look at the, the, all the things, the themes that we've looked at from First Samuel um, within there. But then we're going to take a break for October, where we're going to have a mission month once again. And so we have a number of missionaries. We have the, the Combs who are already here. We're going to give them some opportunity for you to get to learn and hear more about their ministry. We've got the X coming. We've got Armstrong coming. So we're, we're dedicating the month of October to mission. And so we're going to have a full mission month within that. And it's going to be really exciting, some of the things that are coming up and planned within that. And then after Advent, we're going to start 2 Samuel in January. And so we will continue on in 2 Samuel. So for those of you who have your ESV Scripture Journal, uh, hold on to those. We're going to take a little bit of a break from it, uh, but we will come back to it. But we are looking at 1 Samuel 29 this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We pray, Lord, that in your grace and in your mercy, you'll open our eyes to your word this morning that you will give us hope, that you will give us encouragement, that you will strengthen us in our Lord Jesus Christ, and you will fix our eyes upon him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. That as we go through this life and as you are disciplining us, as, your, as a beloved father disciplines his child, that you will be producing in us holiness, that you will be producing in us the fruit, peaceful fruit of righteousness, Father. And be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, most of us have heard the statement, patience is a virtue. We still say that to some degree, although as I was thinking about that, we don't hear it even said that often. But, you know, even as my children, as my children were growing up, I used to often tell them, you know, hey, patience is a virtue. And of course, my sons would say, patience isn't in me. There is a certain attitude in which its patience has always been hard. Patience has always been a difficult thing. And though we've said it's a virtue, and we've all acknowledged its difficulty to be patient, we have also have to recognize that we live in a culture that, though it may say patience is a virtue, every step seems to be done to try to eliminate the need for patience. After a long time of waiting, uh, not too long ago, I guess it's been a, a year or two now at this point, we decided to finally get Amazon Prime. And so with Amazon Prime, before we had Prime, we'd always have to wait and make sure we had you know, enough things to be above the, the limit to get free shipping. And then whatever the shipping was, we would wait for the days to get it for free. But now with Prime, I get it next day. And in fact, with Prime, there's many times I can get it that same day. And it's quite amazing. And I think, oh, I can have this ready for me in tomorrow morning. Like some, some guy is going to come out in like the middle of the night and deliver this. How great is this? And now there's times where sometimes you want to buy something that's not on Prime. And you have to wait 
for shipping. And I think to myself, what a world is this? Come on, I have to wait two weeks to get this? Patience is an enemy. And there's times as well, even in our own entertainment, right? It used to be, I remember growing up, we would have a family sitcom that we would all watch together. And what would happen at the end of that sitcom? You would have to wait at least a week for the following episode to come about. And then you'd have these things called season finales and where you'd have to wait a whole summer. But with Netflix and Prime and whatever streaming service you may have, we get to binge watch. Why on earth do you have to wait for the next episode? There are seasons out there where you can just watch an entire season in one setting. Why wait? Patience simply isn't in us. Even in our entertainment, uh, football. During football season, it's no longer we have to wait for the weekend. I mean, now we can have Monday night football and Thursday night football. We can't, and I I don't get this as a non-football fan. I'm thinking, just let those players sleep. Let them have some rest. But no, we want to have our fixes. Patience simply isn't in us. And so our world is really saturated. It's to say that when we make give lip service to the fact that patience is a virtue. And in fact, as I'm going to argue today, patience is very much part of God's plan, His design in discipling us and training us into godliness. Our world is constantly working within our own desires to say, why should I have to worry with patience? Why can't we design things so that the, we get our fix immediately within that? And this creates within us a tension. As we live in a world that is, even as Christians, we acknowledge God's kingdom is both now and not yet. There's a now and not yet aspect to the kingdom. And within us, we see these ideals within us. We, we have this vision of a good kingdom, this vision within us, this, this appetite, if you will, to use C.S. Lewis's language, for beauty, for something that is transcended, a hunger for something that is out there, permanent, transcendent, good, and glorious. And we would say that is a common grace given to us by God, a longing within our hearts. And even as Christians, we have this longing within us for a good kingdom. But we live in the now and not yet, in which we get to see these foretastes of that kingdom, but we also with patience await for this city, this kingdom that is not yet realized in its fullness within us. And it becomes a great deal of tension within us as we live within that patience. Many of us, we, we can go to the full opposite and swings of the pendulum. We can look and at the the ideal hungers within us, and we say, why aren't we experiencing that? And it can lead into a great deal of frustration and anger and impatience with ourselves and impatience with the world. And some of us just say, let me just give up on this this idealism. And let me just move and live in this world of cynicism. Let me live and move in this world of the scoffer and the mocker. And oh, our world and its discourse and its mockery and its comedy loves that. It's easy to mock this world. It's easy to find ourselves in places of cynicism. 
what does it mean if we embrace the reality of a kingdom that is now and not yet, the reality of a God who is at work in us, shaping us, who is sovereign in his providence and in his glory, is moving the world according to his plan and his purposes. What does it mean for us to find stability? What does it mean for us to find hope? What does it mean for us to find strength? What does it mean for us to find beauty as we move in this broken world with these longings for a better world, this hunger that is given to us by God? As we wait and we declare, quite honestly, for most of us, patience just isn't in us. You see, God points to us in this world and he, sometimes he will give immediate changes within us, but for most of us, as he is shaping us, this life of sanctification, this life of going, growing in Christ is a journey in which God is working in us, sometimes in ways that are so slow and implicit rather than explicit that we don't see it sometimes. And it's easy for us in these places to become discouraged, to become overwhelmed. I'm going to suggest to you today that our passage actually gives us three, three ways to encourage ourselves in a world that is broken, in a world that is fractured, three ways in which we can find ourselves strengthened in the Lord. Three ways in which we can take our eyes and keep our eyes on the glory of the kingdom that is to come without falling into cynicism or impatience or in anger either at ourselves or in the world, but to patiently wait on the Lord and allow as, he wait, as we wait on him for him to change our hearts and to shape us more and more into the image of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. To form us into a people that reflects his generous kingdom. That is at work building his kingdom. Building, giving this world the foretaste of the kingdom that is to come when Christ returns and eradicates sin. And the first thing that as we look at this, uh, we, what I want us to see, uh, we, we'll begin in 1 Samuel 29. Now, last week, uh, we kind of broke the narrative up a little bit. We, in the previous week in chapter 27, we saw that David, in, in a place, I argued, of fear, in a place of doubt even, he left Judah and ended up going to the land of the Philistines and, in, and kind of pretended to give lip service to the Philistine army and to the, specifically to the Philistine king in Gath, who's Achish. And so what we see, he was, he's been in the Philistine lands for over a year. And in that time, he, uh, the Philistine king of Gath gave him the city of Ziklag. Now, during that time as well, he and his army of 600 men had been raiding the enemies of Israel. He's been raiding uh, uh, the Canaanites. He had been raiding the Amalekites within there. But during that time, he was very deceptive, and he would tell the Philistine king that he was raiding the people of Judah. 
Now it ended in chapter 28 where the, all the lords of the Philistines were gathering and were mustering their forces to go to war against Israel. And, and David was called up by the king Achish to go with him. And so we're looking and saying, uh-oh, what has David got himself into? Is he going to have to fight against Israel? Is he going to turn against the, the Philistines? What is going on? And in this brilliant piece of literature and, and storytelling, the, the, the story breaks and we see the narrative of Saul going to the medium at Endor, which is what we talked about last week. And so the story picks back up and it's going back in time, so to speak, before the armies had gathered together, uh, the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines, to where the Philistines are first mustering their armies. And so here's, that's where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 29. And it says this, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is Jezreel. And as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, David and his men were passing in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? In other words, Achish may have been kind of fooled by David and brought in, but the rest of the commanders of the Philistines are saying, um, Why is he here? What's going on? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who had been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. So in other words, David's schemes had kind of worked. No word had gotten to Achish about what he had been doing to raid these other enemies of Israel. In Achish's mind, he is convinced that David has fully turned to the side of the Philistines. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. And others are saying, um, We don't trust this guy. We feel that he could turn on us. For, listen, for how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? And so they're looking at it and they're saying, we don't trust this guy. We can see an easy path for him to get back in the good graces of Saul by handing uh, him, them, all of our heads. And we skip ahead. And, and uh, Achish, verse 6, Achish then called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest... <laughs> Folks, this is so hilarious. I mean, if you're reading this and, and you look at what the, what's knowing what we know, what David had been doing during this time, this is laugh out loud funny. I mean, we're all kind of somber here because it's church, but this is funny stuff. I know that you have been honest, and it seems to me right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to me into this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peacefully that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And so he's trying to, what's funny is he's trying to soften the blow. I know you're a good guy, David. I know you would never do anything. And David's like, oh yeah, I'd never do anything to you guys. And what's amazing, and we're not going to read it, is, is David begins trying to fight with him. It's like, what have I done? And we know he's done all kinds of things. 
And so you see David still just playing this part. Verse 11. But it was not to be. And we're going we're gonna to see that that was incredibly important that he'd been sent home. And so verse 20, uh, chapter 29, verse 11. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. You see, friends, what you see here is so extraordinarily important. We see the providence of God is all over this. David in himself, he's still trying to trust in his trickery. He's still trying to trust in his cunning. Now, we don't know what David would have done in that battle. And what's interesting is the Hebrew is extremely um, vague. It's very vague as far as what what it would do. The way it's worded, he could have absolutely turned on the the Philistines, or it may have been that he would have been stuck actually fighting against Israel. We don't know exactly what he would have done. And by the way, just a little bit of a side note, often in life, you're not going to know the hearts and the intents of other people. You have to trust in God's providence. That's a side note. But God is incredibly gracious to David. Though David is trying to to move about through his trickery and his cunning, God is completely removing him from this situation. Now, this is incredibly important. We know, in fact, we know from last week in chapter 28, that this is going to be the last battle for Saul. Saul is going to die in this upcoming battle. Now, think about that. This is going to be the battle in which the, the, the Saul's dynasty will end. Not only will Saul be killed, but his sons will, will be killed as well. Throughout, what we have seen is David has refused to be part of taking Saul's life into his own hands. And no matter what would have happened, if David was at that battle, that would have tainted him. If he would have fought for the Philistines, that would have been almost people can make the argument that David was on the side of those, even though uh, he had constantly said, I'm sparing Saul. But in the end, Saul would have died. You can make the argument as part of what David had done. Even if he had turned on the Philistines at that time, David would have been, could have been implicated at being there. God, because he, he is saying that I'm going to bring about this change in the kingdom, this change in the dynasty. I'm going to remove Saul as king, and I'm going to keep David as far away as possible from this battle. This is the providence and the hand of God at work. Even though David is trying to rely on his skills, he's trying to rely on his trickery, he's trying to rely on his cunning, he may even be trying to rely on his battle skill, thinking, I can turn on these Philistines, and me and my men can turn the battle. But God's saying, no, it's not about what you're bringing to the table. It is about my, my sovereign hand and providence orchestrating everything that is coming about. We also find that as David is out there, as we're going to read in a little bit, his camp, Ziklag, has been destroyed. He doesn't need to be with the Philistines. He needs to be out someplace else where God is going to gather his attention. What's the point of all this? It's the point, and this is a very important point, as we look and we await this kingdom that is both now and not yet. And of course, Mike Scoopian made this point a while back as he was, we were going through uh, 
uh, uh, 1 Samuel, he said, you know, in many ways, David is kind of an archetype for a lot of what we experience as believers. He, is, he has a, this identity that is both now, he's been anointed by Saul, but he's awaiting this future identity. And of course, this is, this is obviously a foreshadowing of the true Messiah King, the true anointed one, Jesus Christ. But it's also in many ways something that we deal with now. We know as believers we have been justified. We are declared the sons of God. We know that we have the righteousness of Christ that is given to us, but we still live in this place of brokenness, of hurt, where we long for sin to be eradicated both in the world around us, but in ourselves as well, in our own battle with sin. And it comes discouraging sometimes as we await for that hope to be realized. But what we see here is a consistent theme through Scripture that what we hope in, what brings us hope, is not our ability to bring about this, this upcoming future reality within ourselves. It's not our hope that we're going to be able to sanctify ourselves. It's not our hope that we're going to be able to do this for ourselves that we're going to live in such a way that will save my family, that will save my children, save this. But rather, we can take hope, incredible hope, that in the midst of this broken world, we see a sovereign God. And we can find hope in the truth of God's providence. You see, God is not really mentioned anywhere other than this pagan Philistine saying, surely as the Lord lives, you have been good to me. And in fact, we really haven't seen God mentioned much since David fled to the Philistines. But yet, despite David fleeing in fear, despite his fear, despite his doubt, what we see is God is sovereignly at work bringing about his true end, his true kingdom, his true king. He is ultimately bringing about his future that he is called to bring about. Despite David... Not because of David, but despite David, he is at work within him. You see, we look in our lives, and a lot of times we struggle because as we go through the brokenness of life, we can feel like God is distant. It can feel like God isn't there. Sometimes, a lot of times that happens because we've kind of gotten busy with the rhythms of life and the cares of this world, and, and then we come into this crisis and we think, oh man, where's God? We begin reaching out for him, and it doesn't feel like he's there. And it's in those times, and really all times, for us to come back as we deal with a broken world to say, God has never left. God has never abdicated his throne. God has never stepped down in his sovereign position. He is at work, even though we may not have been paying attention, though we may not even be able to see it if we were paying attention. God is at work in his providence and in his, his grace. We long in those places to see God. We have no evidence that that David understood what was happening in the midst of this. It's only through kind of hindsight that we can look back and see that this, this passage is charged with God, even though he's not really mentioned explicitly that much. Oftentimes, that's the case in our lives. It's only as we look back that we can see and, and come to that place where we see he is at work. But oftentimes what we want in that is we want that kind of that feeling, that sense 
that supernatural miracle, that sign that is there. Sometimes God will, in fact, give us something that, 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 that shows and displays within that. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. He reveals himself in mighty and wonderful ways. He's revealed himself to David in mighty and wonderful ways. I, I've been honest with you guys. I've told you oftentimes about my time when I was battling. Um, I, I shouldn't use it in the past tense. I still struggle with it. But when I was really in the thick of it, uh, anxiety and depression a few years ago. And during that time, there was a lot of times that even though I was constantly in the word and in the scriptures, there was times where I struggled. I just longed to feel God's presence within, within those times. And there was times where God showed up in powerful and wonderful and beautiful ways that, that, that just blew my mind. There was one time in the midst of it, it was a Saturday night before I was uh, preaching and I was just, I was at one of the lowest places I've been. I was just really, really low. And I was just sitting there thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to get up and preach the next morning? How, as I feel so just cast about, how in the world am I going to actually say something that's actually going to be meaningful to anybody? And that, and I just was crying out to God, God, please, I don't know what I need, but please, I need something. That night, I didn't, I didn't hear it when it happened, but Mark Killam, the former pastor here at Grace Covenant Church. Now, some of you know Mark really, really well. I actually don't know him. We've met a couple of times. We're not, we're not close. I like him. I love him. I think he's a wonderful guy. But this isn't someone who's just in... This is someone who had no idea what's going on in my life. In the middle of 2 o'clock in the morning, he wakes up, he texts me, he says, I don't know what's going on in your life. God just put you in my heart to pray for you. So I wake up to that. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And so God certainly did something in that moment that showed that he was in control. But in that two-plus years of anxiety, there were many times where I wanted a repeat of that. I wanted more of that. But instead of something miraculous like that, what God would constantly do, sometimes through conversations with friends, sometimes just through my study, just sometimes this through as I would begin to pray or read, God would just remind me of this truth by which I would have to hold on to. It wasn't a feeling, but rather it was a it was a truth that I had to proclaim to myself, God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. Sometimes he will give us those places, those texts, those phone calls, those dramatic places, and sometimes what he'll do is constantly remind us of how he has revealed it in his scripture and in his truth. He's of his providence. And we take hold of that, not of a feeling, not of a miracle, not of a sign, but of the truth of who he is and that he is in control. And as we take hold of that reality that he is in control, what we then do is we find our strength in the Lord and the Lord alone. Take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now, David, when David and his men 
had came to Ziklag. So they, they've moved and they pressed. So this is about 50 miles they've come from where they were to Ziklag. And so this would have been a long, strenuous, difficult journey. They come back to Ziklag on the third day. And the Amalekites, these were the people that, uh, keep in mind, Saul himself was uh, supposed to eradicate. David had been doing skirmishes against them, but they're still here. They're still at work. And what we find is the Amalekites had made a raid against Negev and against Ziklag, and they overcame Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the captive, the women, and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went on their way. Now, before you think that these are just uh, very kind and gracious people because they didn't kill anyone, their purpose was to enslave them, as you, you will see later on with the way they treat their slaves, the Egyptians. This wasn't a blessing. This, they, they had very bad plans for these people. And they killed no one, but they carried them off and went on their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And then David and all the people who were with them raised their voices and they wept until they had they no more strength to weep. And David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam, of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Camel, Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. Now listen, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. And so you see David's world right now is closing in on him. He doesn't know that God had been prov in his providence was moving him away from Philistines. For all he knows, he has now been rejected by his one ally, Achish, he comes back home and all of his source of income, all of his source of wealth and his, all of his family that he has, everything that he can hold on to is now going away. And in fact, even the 600 men who had been around him and who had made him his leader and been following him through all kinds of difficult times are now turning on them saying, maybe we, instead of following this guy, we need to kill him because all he's bringing to us is difficulty and sorrow. His world was collapsing around him. But notice what David does in this time. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's the first thing he does. And this is an important move because his first move isn't to try to give some big speech to the people to try to calm the fears down. His first move isn't to try to go and, and think of some plan or some scheme. His first move isn't to just, hey, let's go run off and, and chase after these Amalekites, nor is it to run away. Notice what his first move is, is to strengthen himself in the Lord. It's the first thing he does. He doesn't try to do anything else, but that is his first move. And David also said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And so ephod brought the, uh, Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out into the 600 men who were with him, and he came to the brook of Bezor, where they who, who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Bezor. 
Now here what we see is a couple of things. We see explicitly is a very strong contrast between Saul and David. Whereas Saul, when he came to this place of desperation, he turned away from the Lord. He turned to a medium. He sought to try to control things. What you see instead is David sought to strengthen himself in the Lord first and then inquired of the Lord, what should I do? And sought to submit himself to whatever God had told him. And we saw that's complete opposite of Saul. Saul, instead of submitting himself to the Lord, began trying to find different ways to get answers to the question he, the answers that he wanted to the questions he wanted to ask. How can I keep my kingdom? David instead says, God, here I am before you. What do I do? I'm here to obey you within this. How did exactly David strengthen himself in the Lord? That sounds so powerful, but what does it actually mean? Well, we have to acknowledge that to some degree, we have to kind of read into the text so that it doesn't explicitly say. But I think from the text, as we look and we kind of break it down, there's, there's some things that we can see that I think went into is strengthening the Lord that certainly match Scripture and match good theology. And the first thing that we can see is he's able to strengthen himself by acknowledging that God was his greatest treasure. And so for us... For we, us to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, we remind ourselves that God himself is our greatest treasure. You see, as things in this world come undone, we remind ourselves that our hope isn't that God will give us the things that we love. He's not to, to give us the family back that we, we feel that we had lost. It isn't to, to, to give us the financial security that we want so much, but that the relationship that we have that is ours by grace through faith is in and of itself our greatest treasure. It is our greatest reward. We don't look at God to get our greatest treasure, to get our greatest reward. All those things can be removed from us. Your good things, things that are good, that are gifts of the God, your family, your marriage, your children, all these things are good things, but these are things that can be removed from you like that. If you make them your treasure, they'll become a weight that crushes you. And you'll ever be trying to hold on to them. But you find that it's like holding on to the wind. They can always just elusively be taken away. You can never fully, no matter how strong your marriage, a disease can come in and take that away like that. No matter how strong your bond is with your kids, no matter how secure your finances are, number one, none of them will satisfy you if you make them your ultimate goal, your ultimate treasure. And they can all be removed. But there is a, when Christ becomes our treasure, when he becomes our all in all by grace through faith, that is something that can never be removed. But ultimately, it is that which will sustain us in this world of this kingdom that is both now and not yet. The second thing is what we've already saw and strengthened himself is a reminder that God alone is in charge. Well, how do we see that? By the way, how do we see that, that he was making Christ his treasure? I think we can see that by the very fact 
that before he did anything else, we find not only that he sought the Lord, but that he was strengthened by the Lord. So in other words, there was something, a strength that came into him before he had a plan, before he knew he was going to get his wives back, before anything else, he was already strengthened in the Lord. And that's where I get the, the conclusion that what he's saying is, what I have in Christ that cannot be taken away from me, that is what strengthens me. The second thing we can see is he recognizes that God alone is in charge. We see that the very fact, his first response after being strengthened is that he asks God, what should we do? He recognizes that God alone is the one who's in charge and he submits himself to God. He also, and this is important, it's somewhat implicit, but it's something we forget. He recognizes God's presence. Now keep in mind, he is not in the land of Israel and many in the ancient Near East thought within this bounds that, yes, there was real gods, but those gods were kind of bound by geography. David didn't view that. He didn't see that. He understood that the sovereign God was not bound by geography. And ultimately, even though David himself had, I would argue, disobeyed God, because we saw earlier in the text that God explicitly told him to be in the wilderness in the land of Judah, and he had left the place of the Philistines, he still recognized God's gracious presence that he had not removed himself. And so as we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, we remind ourselves that he is our treasure, that he is in charge, but we also remind ourselves, and this is incredibly important, that he is present, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that we cannot run anywhere from his presence. He is there. And the fourth thing, and this is admittedly probably the, most, the biggest leap, bringing it into the text, but I would argue is still valid for us. But I can't help but think that he reminded himself of his anointing. That God had anointed him king at the hand of Samuel. The reality that he was chosen by God. And for us... As we seek to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, we remind ourselves of who we are by grace. And that is a place and a position that we find ourselves in, not because of anything that we have done, but simply by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if you are someone who has trusted in the forgiveness of your sins to be made right with the Lord Jesus Christ, by receiving him as Lord and Savior of life, that, that on the cross, Jesus Christ took all of the wrath of God for your sins, that he was raised again from the dead, that he is your Savior, you can bring, you can strengthen yourself in all four of these realities, including the one of who we are in Christ. I am a child of God. This is who I am. In the world of suffering, what we find, friends, is as I've been pastoring for quite some time now, what I found is one of the most egalitarian forces in this world is suffering and difficulty. It doesn't discriminate on the poor. It doesn't discriminate on the, the basis of race. It doesn't discriminate on power. Whoever you are, whatever your position in life, whatever your prestige, suffering will find you. Difficulty. I've pastored at a church that had people of incredible wealth and incredible poverty. 
Now, wealth can help you hide your suffering from the rest of the world, but I can tell you firsthand, it will not isolate you. It will not protect you from suffering and the difficulties. And in those times, you can try to strengthen yourself and your resources, your talents, your intellect, your power, your position, and none of it will work. Only strengthen yourself in the Lord can you find hope and peace and encouragement. Verse 16, they pursued, um, God told them to pursue him, and so they go on to pursue, and they, they come across an Egyptian slave of the, the band that had raided them, and they, he had been left for dead, and so David generously gives him, and, and the food that he gives them is actually quite extravagant. It's a very, it's a very generous, it's, the, it's the, a food of blessing, right? It's not just, you know, give them the bare minimum. And the slave promises to take David and his band uh, to where the Amalekites are, their camp is. And so in verse 16, it says, And when he had taken him down, behold, they're spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. So that tells you, keep in mind, David's band themselves was 400. And so by this text, you can tell that this was a pretty large army. This is a pretty large group that had been defeated. 400 of them had uh, took off. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. And nothing was missing whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. And David brought back all. And David also captured all the flocks and, and the herds. And the, the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. And then David came into the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Bazar. And when they went to meet David and met the people who were with him, and David came near to the people, he greeted them. Now listen, and then the, all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any spoil that have been recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. So now they're saying, hey, these guys didn't do the hard work. We did the hard work. This is our stuff. They can have their wives and their kids. The rest of it, it's ours. We did the work. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. Now listen, with what the Lord has given to us. What's the emphasis? He's not saying this is ours because we're the ones who went out and raided the camp. He's saying this is ours because the Lord has given it to us. Listen, this is David talking again. He, that's God, has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be with those who stay by the baggage. And they shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends and to the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoils from the enemies of the Lord. So not only does he share with his men, he goes out and he looks at all the spoil because the people of the Malachites, they didn't just raid Ziklag, they were raiding a whole bunch of people all about. 
And so they have not just the spoils that they had back from Ziklag, but a whole bunch of other booty from, from this raid that is in there. And when he comes back, not only does he share it with his men, but he's saying, I'm going to bless all the other people of Judah. I'm going to bless God's people with this. I'm not just going to use this to make myself rich. And it was for those in Bethel and Ramoth and Negev and Jatir and Erer and, and Sifmoth and Esthomia. You guys remember not to judge my Oklahoma accent when I read these? Anyway, so we're going to move on. He, he, he moves on, and it's, and it's for all the places David and his men had roamed. And the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and, this fell, and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now, what do we see here? David has strengthened himself in the Lord. What he has found as God is at work within us, he is the found in this kingdom that is both now and not yet, the reality of a gracious kingdom. And so he's found the beauty of grace in a generous kingdom. Now, what is the foundation of this gracious kingdom? It is the recognition that what has taken place has taken place through the providence of God. It is theirs, not because they earned it, because they were mighty men in battle, but because God preserved their lives. Because God is the one who's at work. All that they had was theirs because of God. Now, for a lot of us, we struggle to see that, right? For years, when I was growing up, um, I was blessed by God to be able to go to university, to my undergrad at Oklahoma State University, where all God's people go. I know some of you are looking at me with envy at that. But, um, but I was able to go because God graciously provided a number of grants and scholarships for me. And so I went and I didn't have to pay anything. Now, following on myself, for years, for years, I looked back at that time with a certain amount of smugness, with a certain amount of pride. Yeah, I got my college paid for. I did that. That was through my hard work. Now, there was hard work involved in it. But God broke me one day in a way that was beautiful and it was painful because it ripped an idol from me. As I began to, as he slowly began to show me in very painful reality that that education was given to me as, as a gift of his grace. I didn't earn it and I didn't deserve it. Yes, I did a lot of hard work, but it was ultimately his grace that provided that. There's a lot of people way more intelligent than I am, way more hardworking than I am, a lot more deserving than I am that didn't have their college education paid for. What he gave me was his grace. This wasn't for me to prop myself up and make myself feel good about it. But as I've often shared that illustration, I remember sharing it at a, a very um, prestigious group of people they really pushed back. No, 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 you did that. This was your hard work. Don't you, don't you rob yourself of that. And I had to really keep pushing to them. No, this was a gift of God's grace. You see, in our culture, we don't want to say that, especially in the American culture. We were looking to say, look at my kingdom. Look at my home. Look at my car. Look at my job. Look at what I did. But scripture reminds us that no, 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 no. 
That's not the way the world works. As much as the American dream wants to sell us of that, what we have, what I have, and guess what? What you have, you may have worked really hard, but there's a lot of people who work really hard and don't have it, is a gift to you of God's grace. Everything you have, friends, is from God, according to his province, according to his goodness, the good and the bad. When we recognize that, it can absolutely change. It's painful because it rips idols from us, but it can change our outlook into this world in wonderful and beautiful ways. And this absolutely reflects what you see as David saw that what they had was not theirs because of their ingenuity or their battle uh, strategies or their strength, but because God had given it to him, it enabled him to see a generous God who was at work in their lives, and it enabled him to see the beauty of a generous kingdom that enabled him to become generous as well. And this is the kingdom of God, and this is consistent theme of what we see is God establishes his covenant people, whether it's a, a church or a kingdom, it is set up to be a, a kingdom that reflects his generosity because it first acknowledges that all that it is and all that it has comes to them by the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the ultimate king, the Messiah, makes that quite explicit. In Matthew 20, he tells a parable of this landowner who hires all these workers to come and to work. And he pays them a very fair wage of a denarius. But then as the day goes about, he invites more workers to come in and to work. And so you have workers who worked all day and some who worked just a short amount of the day. And at the end of the day, they go to collect their wages and they all receive a denarius. They all receive the same pay. And they want to revolt. Hey, wait a minute. And they're just like us. They're just like us with the American dream. Hey, we earned this. Why are you not paying us more? Or why are you giving them just as much? And the landowner's response is, I gave you what you agreed to. This was a generous gift from me to you. Who are you to tell me who I'm to be gracious towards? What that confronts is not only our understanding of grace, but our understanding of us getting what we earn and what we deserve. As we begin to understand the graciousness of the kingdom, it profoundly changes us when we go through hardship because it helps us realize that we are surrounded by God's grace. Even when it feels like things are falling apart, all that we have that is good and wonderful is ours by the living God. And that should give you hope, friends, because what that tells you is no matter how, where you are, no matter what you're going through in your life and in your difficulties, your hope isn't found in a kingdom of justice because of a kingdom of justice, you have no hope. You have no future. But a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of mercy that is ultimately in control, that means there is a gracious Savior who is there in his love and his mercy despite our unworthiness. But here's the next side of that, right? In this kingdom and grace and mercy, we understand that we receive grace to be changed 
and to reflect that kingdom of grace and mercy. So David views, he understands I have received, but then he also recognizes that the response to that is to freely give. You see, oftentimes this really challenges us. We, many of us, we can't even look. It's like, oh, look, God gave us all this extra time, all this extra money. I guess I get to use it watching football. Oh, I guess I get to use all this extra fun, uh, money to do this, this thing that I've always wanted to do. Now, we got to be careful. I don't want to become legalistic in any way, shape, or form. I'm not saying we shouldn't use all the gifts of God, that God, God gives us opportunities to enjoy this good world, and that's fine. But our instinct, anytime we recognize the grace and generosity and the bounty of the Lord, is to recognize that it is from Him and is ultimately for Him. So do we ever ask the question, wow, God has really blessed me. God, what are you calling me to do with these blessings? Those blessings may be resources, funds, money. Maybe that he may not be calling us to to continue to try to find a happiness and getting more and more material life or things, but rather to invest that money into the kingdom. Maybe it's through missionaries. Maybe it's through giving here at the church. Maybe it's through some other giving of whatever that may be. Now, we can say that with finances, but that's not our only resource, your time. Hey, I've got this extra time, this resource of time that we may be able to use. Also, our love, the ability to give our love to maybe those who don't deserve it because we don't deserve it. So can we share our love to those who maybe need love, need to be seen or shown love? Maybe people like refugees, who are coming in. We can show our forgiveness. We who have been forgiven in this generous kingdom can show that we ourselves can forgive even when it doesn't make sense by the world's standards. And ultimately, we can share our hope as well. The hope of a generous kingdom. It's easy in our world that is filled with mockers and cynics. The way our political discourse is made, the way our comedy is done, to just mock this world, to scoff at it. It's broken. It's easy for us to become depressed and discouraged. Indeed, I know, I've dealt with it. But within this broken world, there is a kingdom where there is a king, Christ Jesus, who has overcome the king of this world on the cross. He has risen from the dead. He has overcome death. The first fruits of his kingdom are here and they are now. They give us hope. They can give you hope in what you're going through. If you'll find yourself strengthening yourself in the Lord, that you would make him your treasure and him alone. If you throw yourself upon his hope, if you trust that he is in control and not you, there is a hope that can sustain you. And not only sustain you, actually bring you joy, peace, hope. Will you reach out to that hope this morning?
is we have the assurance by God's grace that it's based, that hope can be, you can be confident in that hope on the basis of who God is, not who you are. Reach out to that hope today. Father, we thank you for your love and to your mercy. Who are, the, who are we that we should reach out, that we should be hopeful, that we should have peace in this kingdom? But yet, by your grace, in a world that is shifting, we have a solid foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That though we may feel so unloved, so cost, tossed about, we have this reality that in Christ we can know we are loved. Enable us by faith to hold on to that truth and that reality this morning. Wrap us in your love this morning. Enable us to rest in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray.